And so I always wanted to, to sort of say race is deeply rooted in architectural discourse. You just have to understand that history and also know how to look for the language, right, in the intellectual framework. Welcome. I'm Michelle Washington, the host of Curious Story Lab, a podcast that takes a deep dive into conversations with artists, architects, creators, makers, futurists, and innovators whose work pushes beyond the boundaries as they open up new areas of thinking within their fields. On today's episode, I'm having a conversation with Mabel Wilson. She's an architect, curator, writer. She's also an educator. Mabel's the Nancy and George Rump Professor of Architecture, Planning, Preservation at Columbia University here in New York City. She's also produced a prolific body of research that will take you through the canons of race and architecture. So now, let's check out Mabel Wilson. Welcome to Curious Story Lab, Mabel Wilson. I'm excited to be talking to you today. Excited to be here. Thank you for coming on our show. I'm going to start off asking you a question about all the spaces that you navigate from education to design to research, art, technology, writing, curation, and public speaking. Why do you feel it's important for you as an architect to overlap all of these spaces within your practice. To describe a very complex world, you need a lot of different kinds of spaces and communities to to engage. And so I've just found over the years that it's important to just, you know, just have these different communities as part of my practice. Does working in all of these different spaces, that allows you to interface and integrate with a lot of different people that you are able to bring into your work? Yeah. I mean, it just offers, you know, an opportunity to meet and um, collaborate with and have conversations with different audiences and different perspectives. So it's just like seeing multiple facets, sometimes even on the same subject, but you're just looking at it from different perspectives. And I've just found that useful as a kind of practice. It sounds really enriching. A strong sense of community was a foundational aspect of Mabel's family life. My parents are from Greenville, North Carolina, which is eastern Eastern North Carolina. That place where they grew up really was very nurturing community. How did creativity show up in your family? Both my, my parents and my father, dad was a chef. My grandfather was a chef in that side of the family. They ran a cafe. So he actually came from a family of chefs who had um, restaurants. And so there was always that creative side. There was just always something kind of cooking or being made. My my dad designed the house I grew up in. So we knew things could be made at different scales, whether in the pot or on the drawing board. And uh, my father, he was an engineer, he could draft. And there was a builder who hired him to do drawings for him. So, and one of the houses that the builder built uh, was the house that we grew up in. One of the important people in her life was her uncle, John Outerbridge, a prominent abstract artist whose vision helped shape her artistic expression and her visual thinking. My uncle, John, what I appreciate about his influence was just understanding his work and looking at his work as I got older. It just gave me a way to to think about like, well, what are Black cultural expressions 
in things that are made and whether it be a sculpture or a building, like why couldn't we, you know, sort of think about those. And particularly since architecture and architectural education is still very, very, very male and white, extremely Eurocentric, you know, which is American, that it just, just gave me a whole other point of reference to think about as I began to maybe just seek other kinds of ways of thinking about space and materiality. I mean, he was just a kind of important person whose work inspired, but I also had, as I said, other uncles who were creative. I just knew that that there was a whole other world out there that wasn't necessarily coming through in my formal education. Asking questions that require deeper examination of existing systems is a theme that has played throughout Mabel's career as an architect, including her work as a founding member of the Who Builds Your Architecture Coalition. Who Builds Your Architecture started about something about 10 years ago, actually. So it was like, have we been really working on this question for 10 years? And it started from a conversation with a colleague. We had noticed that a group called Gulf Labor um, had been, had launched a protest um, against the Guggenheim Museum building in Abu Dhabi to ensure fair labor practices for the people who were on the construction sites, that they were paid fairly, safe working conditions, decent housing conditions, and they would be mindful of exploitation in the construction process. We noticed that no architects had said anything, like it just was not even on the radar of the architecture press. And we were trying to figure out why. That led to one public discussion, which was somewhat unsatisfactory, raised more questions than it answered. And so we launched this question, who builds your architecture as a kind of advocacy to make visible the relationships between architects and those who build their buildings. Legally, there is a complete firewall between those two things, and yet they're connected. And we wanted to sort of make visible that relationship around labor and to really understand this kind of question around job sites. And this happens globally around the world in specific locations. And no, it, it happens all over the place. I mean, our test cases, a lot of them were in the Middle East, like Qatar, where there were just very intensive construction projects like the Olympics, FIFA, where they were building roads and infrastructure in places like Qatar or Abu Dhabi. They were importing labor to do that work. Qatar, the population is like 10%, 90% are our uh, guest workers, many of them domestic workers. So we used those human rights reports to really understand the landscape and to use tools of representations to draw this geography. But it wasn't just a question of the Middle East. This happens in New York City, where you find, you know, contractors who haven't paid fair wages to workers. You have undocumented workers on site, which can be very vulnerable to exploitation. You have a lot of investment in new construction. And there are millions of dollars flowing through these projects. And sometimes they don't get into the hands of the workers who are actually building them. And the conditions on site aren't aren't great. And, you know, in New York, We had a conversation in Istanbul, you know, around deaths on construction sites. Do we have laws in New York City that hold uh, contractors accountable? There are job safety protocols that are supposed to be put into place. It's just a question of like how attentive the job site is to following that. 
And there, there are laws on the books. But a lot of times, you know, particularly in the United States, with the ways in which municipalities are struggling uh, financially, especially now with the pandemic, lowering tax bases, there just aren't the number of people who do inspections that probably should be out there doing the work. Listening to you talk about this sort of reminds me a little bit of um, migrant farm workers and that there's a similarity because there's always a lot of issues around um, work safety, but also health care and housing. Yeah, it's very similar when you have like migrant pools of labor. That's why domestic workers are a part of that. I mean, anytime you have people who are, for example, not citizens, then, you know, what guarantees your rights? You can't really argue in court and, so, you know, in some parts it gets, it's, it gets very difficult. And in some places, the law doesn't matter, you know, because it's an authoritarian state. So, yeah, it can be very complicated. We weren't the only one. Gulf Labor clearly had a campaign. And there are other folks, human rights groups and lawyers who really, you know, delve into this stuff in greater detail. But our audience was specifically, how do we get architects to think about these questions? And... Are you getting more architects locally and globally to really participate more and think about if they would be working on these type of projects and what that entails? Yeah. I mean, I do think it it did raise awareness. Um, So, you know, we don't have, you know, data or, I mean, this was not a funded project in the sense that we had a big grant to do this work at not at all. I mean, you know, a lot of this at this point, really, we're not compensated for the work in that sense, which is, can you could say that's a problem. Um, But we're all academics. So we see it, you know, as kind of part of our research. But there are, um, you know, the architecture lobby, which is a group that looks um, specifically at labor issues that came out of Peggy Deemer, who was at our first conversation about it, where she kept, you know, pleading. It's like, well, how do you think architects are going to see unjust labor conditions on job sites when their own offices are probably also, when you think about, you know, kind of exploited labor, you, you, this was an issue around interns and long hours and low pay. She uh, started the architecture lobby and which has just grown into chapters and you know, I mean, that's become a whole thing. And then there's a whole um, effort around forced labor in the um, production of construction materials. And that's a whole initiative started by Grace Farms. It sounds like it also feeds into what some people are doing in the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we looked at, you know, models were initiatives back in the 90s around sweatshop workers and the ways in which like iPhones, you know, the, the, the pressure to make sure that they were, you know, but the difference is that these are products that we buy. So there's a very direct relationship, you know, coffee, for example, um, to ensure that child migrants aren't um, collecting. So fair coffee is another one. Uh, because they're commodities, they circulate differently. Buildings don't move, so it's it's a bit different. It's a it's a bit more difficult. But we also looked at you know the green building movement, and that didn't exist 30 years ago, and now it's part of the code of ethics for the American Institute of Architects. It's um, it's where we put pressure. It's what we make visible. How we get people talking. We're a small, tiny group. We purposefully have not made it a big a big group um, because that will take a lot of 
effort and time. And we just really wanted to focus on the research, the advocacy, and sort of making visible these questions. While the coalition has been contemplating the question of labor for around 10 years, more recently in her position at Columbia University in the GSAP, the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, Preservation, Mabel and her colleagues wrote a powerful letter in response to the protests around the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, bringing attention to the structural issues of whiteness and systemic racism in architectural institutions. Yeah, I mean, our statement on learning whiteness was created by myself and and my Black colleagues at GSAF, sort of in response to many of the statements that were coming out of institutions that we're all involved in, these nonprofits and professional organizations and educational institutions and magazines. I mean, everybody was putting out some sort of statement, how we stand in solidarity with Black Lives Matter you know, Black folks would just respond, well, that's great that you stamp. So what what specifically are you doing? And then, you know, the then response would be, we've got diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we're bringing people in. And, and, and I think what we realized specifically in architecture, because there's still just so few Black folks and people of color who become licensed architects or even, you know, decide to study, you know, that there was a much more deeper problem. And we realized it wasn't about inclusion. It was about the structural presence of whiteness in the field, in the discipline, which impacts both the profession and the body of knowledge that students learn. And we felt, you know, in the spirit of decolonization to just be more explicit about you need to unlearn whiteness. The problem isn't diversity, equity, inclusion. That All that stuff came after civil rights and affirmative action. We spent 60 years on this, you know, being on this train, and we're right back to where we were in the 60s with the poverty level the way it is, with white supremacy just being just vocally aired everywhere, that it wasn't our work to do. We did the work. We've we've made visible, we've done research, we've entered into institutions. And what we found was that people just thought this would mag- magically change. Like it's, you know, it's just an attitude. And it's like, no, it's structural. And because it's structural, it's everywhere. And it can't just be one place. It has to be every place. And in order to do that, it needs to be recognized in terms of how you frame certain ideas. If you're applying for a grant, it has to be around excellence. Well, what does that mean? And often that is then measured on what's already existing, right? So if you're not following exactly that path of what's existing, they don't know how to read your work. Well, it's not excellent. I don't understand it. So it gets dismissed, which means you can't get whatever grant fellowship that you were looking at. And so those are the kind of subtle ways in which People don't realize that's how race is embedded. Racism is embedded. And so the request to unlearn whiteness was to really uh, just kind of interrogate all of the ways in which it's infused in the institution, our educational institution in our school. Mabel's dissertation turned book, Negro Building, Black Americans in the World, affairs and museums has been making an impact in those very institutional spaces. I just sat on it for a year because I also just needed some distance before, you know, I opened it back up. And I just kind of spent time thinking, 
so this is what it did as a dissertation. What more does it have to do as a book? And then spent the time really crafting that as a project. And it was great because it came out University of California Press in 2012, hardcover. And they just re-released it as a paperback because it turns out it actually was a very important book in museum studies. There just weren't any books like that. And it also is an interdisciplinary audience in American history, Black history, American studies, art history. It just covered so much that uh, it's also part of an urban history that they thought uh, it was worth re-releasing, doing a print run in paperback. Could you talk about Negro buildings, how you would define Negro buildings? Well, the Negro buildings were specific. I mean, they were Negro buildings. (laughs) That's what they were called. The first one was at the Atlanta Cotton State Exposition in 1895. Um, The building is not remembered. It was in Piedmont Park, and it was part of a larger ensemble of buildings, of machine halls and art salons, and there was a um, midway area, but it was specifically called the Negro Building, and it was funded and, and financed by the organizers of the fair. And this was in Atlanta that was sort of trying to imagine itself as a kind of Chicago of the South. It didn't see itself any longer coming out of a plantation economy and that ruling class, but a new class of industrialists who were building wealth through the manufacture of the region, but also the ability to move those raw commodities through railroads to other parts of the country. So Atlanta was seeing itself as quite kind of like this this urban center of the South. So they wanted to have a Cotton States exposition, right, that reflected that position. This was two years after the famous White City, the Columbia Exposition, in Chicago. And at that exposition in Chicago, Ida B. Wells, you know, had written this book, Why Isn't the Colored People or Colored Man at this Columbia Exposition? Have we not contributed to American history? In that book, she wrote, you know, this kind of scathing critique. Frederick Douglass, I believe, contributed to that. Booker T. Washington was involved in setting up the Negro Building two years later, at the exposition where he gave an address, later known as the accommodation speech. So he was basically sort of advocating both for Black people to acquiesce to what was clearly emerging as second-class citizenships, right? And the violence of Jim Crow, you know, in exchange for this kind of slow process of racial uplift, right, through industrial training institutions like Tuskegee. And so that's kind of what the Negro building showed. It showed a lot of handicraft and handwork and woodworking. You had sewing and, you know, Black people from around the South, where the majority of Black people lived, felt like this is an opportunity to show what we've accomplished since emancipation. But there was a healthy debate about, well, if we accept a separate building, are we accepting Jim Crow? There was a question of, well, how do we get there? Do we have to ride in separate train cars? Do we have to have separate hotels? Like, you know, it was very clear what was on the horizon. And yet many felt like this was our opportunity to claim this space, right? To imagine who we are going to be as American citizens. The building drew in organizers with different ideas about how to move forward and led to a major international exhibition. T.J. Calloway, who worked for Booker T. Washington, organized uh, a fair exhibition at the Paris Exposition in 1900. And he asked his classmate, W.E.B. Du Bois, to contribute to that. Du Bois 
came to Atlanta shortly after the fair had closed to run what were called the Atlanta conferences. And there was an idea that those conferences would actually happen at the fair, but Du Bois didn't make it in time and so didn't start the Atlanta conferences. And so his research at Atlanta University became the content for the American Negro Exposition um, in Paris. And the graphics that were in that show uh, became very well known now. And photographs, there's a great book by Deb Willis and David Leving Lewis on the photograph. Sean Michelle Smith has a great book on the photographs. Du Bois is kind of seeing, unlike Washington, who did contribute to the Paris Exposition, Du Bois is seeing a different perspective on the world, a kind of Pan-African perspective, one in which Black people are socially equal and have rights. So the fairs actually become these very interesting arenas for these debates about the the present, the future, but also what for me was quite interesting, an understanding of a Black past. And that leads very directly, as I document in the book, to the Black Museum movement of the 60s, and then eventually to the African-American Museum that opened in 2016. Mabel wrote the book for the National Museum of African American History and Culture and documented the long and arduous process of getting the museum up and running in Washington, D.C. That effort to do a national museum was started by Ferdinand Lee, and I forgot there was a woman who is a club a figure in the club movement in Washington, D.C. They had been involved in the Negro building in Jamestown in 1907, and that's why this all of this is really connected. And 1915, they wanted, because this was the 50th anniversary of emancipation, and they recognized that those Black soldiers, Union soldiers that had experienced the war were passing away, and they wanted to honor their legacy, but because of Jim Crow, had no place to meet and to gather. And so building a National Memorial Museum would give them that space and would allow for the placement of busts, famous Black figures, to say that Blacks had contributed to American history. Several attempts to create a museum were made over the years, but none succeeded until 2000 when a law was passed and funding provided. Mabel worked with the partners of Dallas Scafidio and Renfro to enter the building design competition and became familiar with the winning scheme designed by David Ajaye. Max Bond, and Phil Freeline. Former museum director Lonnie Bunch was also familiar with Mabel's dissertation after a mutual friend suggested she share it with him. There was finally a law passed and it was funded and the museum came on board. The funny story about why I was asked was I... um, I met Lonnie Bunch through a mutual friend, Marjorie Schwartz, and she said, oh, you should really give him your dissertation. So I did. I dropped off in in his offices. I I just said, I think you'd be very interested in this. And so Lonnie Bunch and Kinshasa Conwell, who's the associate director, knew of my involvement both as a scholar in this history as well as a designer who can actually understand how to read a plan and what the stakes of the architecture were. And they approached me about just writing a a book. And usually books of this kind for museums, they will get multiple authors to do it. But they just said, you know, propose something. And Lonnie, being a historian, you know, I thought he would appreciate if people understood that this didn't just happen. This was the struggle that the museum was trying to document. And that's what I said I would recount. I would tell that struggle as well as like what this building actually is and how it came to be and what are some of the features of the design and why it's so important. And so 
they let me write that book. It was also great because Kinshasa, she and her husband, Houston Conwell, who's a well-known artist and she's a curator, they knew my uncle very well from Los Angeles days. So it's funny how you you build a kind of network of associations and people and work. And, you know, those are the different communities that I mentioned early on. I wanted to talk to you about your latest book, Race in Modern Architecture, in which you collaborated on with two other editors, Irene Chang and Charles L. Davis. And if you could talk about how you delve into architecture and how it intersects with the history of slavery, colonialism, and it goes from the 18th century all the way up to the present, where it deals like with the built environment, public housing, and architecture today. I mean, that project was many years in the making. It was, on a personal level, something I'd been interested in, specifically in architecture, because my PhD is in American studies. And part of that was because when I applied to architecture programs, they didn't quite know what to make of somebody who wanted to work on race. I also didn't quite have exactly the right pedigree, I think, because I hadn't done art history as an undergrad. And So I ended up in American studies, which for me actually turned out to be fantastic. And so I always wanted to to sort of say race is deeply rooted in architectural discourse. You just have to understand that history and also know how to look for the language, right, and the intellectual framework that makes that possible. And Charles Davis um, had been doing really great work. His dissertation was was fantastic, looking at Gottfried Semper and Ville de Doux, who were very important 19th century sort of theorists on form and culture. And then Irene Chang, who I knew from Columbia, had also been doing work on sort of figures like race, Jefferson, and America. The three of us were on a a panel together. And then another colleague, Diane Harris, who has a great series at University of Pittsburgh Press. And she herself has done really great work on whiteness and architecture, particularly looking at the formation of the American suburb in the 1950s. The four of us kind of realized, oh, wait, we really do need like a collection that just kind of shows the various ways in which race is a part of the discourse of architecture, particularly architecture history and theory. And so we asked a few folks who we knew had worked on this. They looked to colleagues whose work was well known to them, like Reneld Martin and Luis Carranza. They put out an open call for others not on their radar in the space to join them for a workshop to discuss in-depth formation of racial differences in architectural discourse. Part of the reason we go to the Enlightenment, because race as a concept isn't formed yet. It's there as a term, but it shifts between nation. It's 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 not articulated the way it is by the mid-19th century, where you have modern sciences, you have modern professions like architecture that are fully formed. The book traces this arc of how human difference as racial difference gets kind of encoded into ideas like organicism, into, you know, ideas of climate and material response to climate, into representations of cultural difference into notions of primitive and progress, into housing practices, into concepts of urban blight. They also wanted to include people in the volume who wrote about architecture and race who were not architects. 
We invited Adrian Brown, who's done a fantastic book, The Black Skyscraper, where she looks at literature as a lens to understand how the anxiety of this sort of new modern form was very much kind of coded to a sort of anxiety around racial difference, racial proximity, and the inability to read race. And Lisa Udan, who had been writing about the work of Noah Purifoy in Los Angeles and the ways in which, you know, as a designer, he drifted into what he called sort of like junk urbanism, junk art. Uh, and again, Purifoy is a, was a close friend and collaborator of my uncle, John Annabridge. So together, it just makes up this sort of compendium of work that sort of analyzes this question of how race appears in architecture. And it was never meant to be comprehensive. And, you know, we we acknowledged it's coming from a very European and American-centric focus and that there is complete room to challenge that and to really explore this from the so-called global South and from other perspectives, which people are doing, which is very exciting. While the veritable compendium of work examines the question of how race appears in architecture, the collaborators acknowledge it was never meant to be comprehensive. Coming from a European and American-centric focus, they recognize that there is room to explore perspectives, ideas, and practices from the global South to challenge the Western definitions of architecture and design. Part of the project is to sort of understand that architecture, design, because they are Western discourses, right? You know, not a knowledge base and a set of practices, which is the definition of a discourse, are they're just already racialized because they form precisely at a moment where Europe is is reaching out in its colonial project of both conquest, resource extraction, and settlement. And so so that racial hierarchies are sort of produced in that. It really emerges in the late 18th and 19th century in the face of trying to take stock of now a kind of world that has been colonized and that produces a, a method, a historiographic method that always privileges the perspective of the West and also of whiteness, which is what we sort of try to argue in the book. So it, it takes to task the notion of architecture itself, which is the West. I say it's the Western art of building and because people build all over the place without architects, without the way in which we build through plans and sections and, you know, this sort of elaborate processes. They did it before there was an invention of the term architecture. So it's useful to be mindful of that. And through that, I think then these other building practices can actually be useful, right? If we understand them, that what we see in the West as architecture and design is but one way of making the world. Now for a short break. I want to share an exciting book project that I've been a part of, The Black Experience in Design, Identity, Expression, and Reflection. This project was produced by a stellar group of Black academics and designers, which includes Anne Barry, Kareem Kali, Leslie Noel, Pena Okoye-Laker, Jennifer Rittner, and Kelly Walters. You can order the book now. It's set to drop in February 2022. The book serves as a platform to gather a multiplicity of ideas. And with these essays, we get to hear from some amazing stellar colleagues talking to each other across geographies, disciplines, 
ages, experience. Plus, the book includes two beautifully written forwards. The first one is by Emery Douglas, based on an interview by Colette Gator, and the second forward is by Rua Benjamin. You can check out more details on how to order this book in our show notes. Now back to Curious Story Lab. Mabel has explored these questions throughout her curatorial and exhibition work as well, each project informing the next since her first collaboration in a show called House Rules at the Wexner Center in 1994. And so I worked with a feminist geographer and we were looking at, again, the ways in which like racial differences ingrained in concepts of the house, the single family American house. And we looked at a subdivision in um, Lexington, Kentucky to understand how whiteness and heteronormativity are embedded. And then we spoke with um, a group of, of women who were living in public housing in Lexington. And so how do you present that? How do you present those ideas publicly? Uh, and, you know, one's a theoretical text and the other is this like thing that we made out of glass, which was kind of crazy. The project had Mabel grappling with the question, how does one present such an idea at an exhibition? They went with the theoretical text and a glasswork representation. Mabel's former KW partner, Paul Carluke, worked with a similar ethos for their project, The Away Station, exploring the idea of domesticity in urban migration. Like, what do people do when they're sort of between the home that they came from and the home that they're aspiring to be? And so The Away Station really explored that. I think we were asked to submit something by Kyung Park and Shireen Nishat when they were st still running storefront for grant with creative time. And that's what we proposed. I don't think the grant got funded, but Paul and I were like, hey, this is a great idea. Let's see if we can get funding to do it. We we did, we proposed, you know, it to storefront. Kyung was still running it then. He said, we'd love to do the show. And, and so that's how we did the Away Station, which was shown in a number of places. And um, it's currently an SF MoMA's collection and was shown at the Design Triennial at the Cooper Hewitt. For me, it's always been a way to explore maybe more conceptually a set of ideas, which is why exhibitions can be a certain kind of platform, because then there was kind of language out of the Away Station that Paul and I used for a couple of projects, an apartment in Ottawa, and then a house we worked on in the San Juan Islands. And so that project became directly influential built work that we did. So these things can be generative of ideas, of, of techniques of making. We used the resin cast method that we used for the Away Station for another project, the Shroud of Memory, that was shown in a show called Monument Recall at um, SF Camera Works 2003, I think. Oftentimes, it's a great form to explore and experiment, really. And then you can take whatever that is and transfer it back to sometimes scholarly work, sometimes built work. But they're interesting. Yeah. Like with Who Builds Your Architecture, we did a show in the Istanbul Biennale. And then from that, we were asked to do a show at the Chicago Art Institute for their project room, which was up for about nine months. So again, thinking about like, how do you present ideas to the public? How do you engage a public? And they're all slightly different in, in terms of how they work. They're just fascinating in terms of a kind of scale that you have a level of control over that sometimes you can't with built work because they're clients and budgets. 
Maybe we'll work with the storefront again under Ava Franch, Chief Curator and Executive Director since 2010. Ava found Mabel's colleague, Briny Roberts, collaboration with the South Shore Drill Team at the Chicago Biennale, highlighting the precision of their marching against the backdrop of a famous Mies van der Rohe work. Really fascinating. She was intrigued by drill teams. You know, she's from Spain and her perception of the United States is like, well, why would African-Americans even be kind of want to evoke anything militaristic to be throwing guns up in the air. From her perspective, it was like, this was kind of surreal. <laughs> and so she approached me and Bryony to say, you know, I think there was really something to explore here. We found a really great collaborator, the Marching Cobras, who are based here in New York City. And they're both a drum line and a dance line. So different. They're, they're not a drill team, but they performed all over at Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. They were in the film Birdman. When we met them, they were excited because they had just done a runway show with Rihanna. Um, so they're great because they're, you know, they, they, they really are invested, you know, in their performances. And we thought it would be interesting to, to, to meet with them and do some workshops around the history of um, marching and their craft, which they didn't really know anything about. They did some archival work to try and understand how did Black people get involved in marching. It did go back to the military, from enslaved people being drum and fife players during the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, and even a documented early group of Union soldiers who marched in Union Square here in New York City. So this idea of how Black people take public space and flip the script on what it means to be Black in public became a through line in what we were seeing. Visibility of brass bands and jazz bands came out during the late 19th and early 20th century, later taken to another level by historically Black colleges and universities, and then the drums became an important part of street protests. And then the idea of being in the street during the protest. And we saw the 1917 protest, the silent march that W.B. Du Bois organized down Fifth Avenue, where you had women and children wearing white and nobody is speaking, but you hear this kind of drum rattle and they're carrying signs, you know, saying that X number of people were lynched. It's just very powerful way in which you know, Black communities take to the streets out of protest and then followed in 1919 by the Harlem Hellfighters, the, the regiment that introduced jazz to Europe who fought alongside the French because white troops wouldn't, American troops wouldn't fight with them. They came back to great fanfare. And again, here they are on Fifth Avenue with their music and marching. And, and, and so we had really great discussions with the Cobras who age in range from seven to 20, just about this history. And with Terrell Stowers, who's the director, and Kevin Jones, who's the choreographer. We started to work with them to think about, like, where could we, how would we perform, and what would it be? And we decided on Marcus Garvey Park, a space in the city where they could actually do, like, drill routines. And, you know, and then the park itself, we realized, was a site where there had been a long-standing drum circle 
But because of gentrification, there has started to become noise complaints, right? As, you know, people who aren't familiar with the community, often non-Black, we're like, well, this isn't what I want to hear on a Saturday. And so, you know, this is what happens often when neighborhoods are gentrifying and, and noise complaints, you know, to the police then start to put pressure on people to move. So we wanted to honor that legacy of the park. And so that's how we came up with this performance marching on with the Marching Cobras. For another project of historical significance, Mabel served as the historian of design for the Memorial of the Enslaved Laborers at the University of Virginia, her alma mater. This is my service back to UVA, and I want to make sure it's done properly. And I also love the people at UVA that I work with. And from my understanding, it started with the apology from the governor of Virginia about slavery. And then that sort of trickled down to, okay, so this is the university, the state university. What's the university's response? And students started to put pressure on the university to address its history of slavery. And that was like in 2006, 2007. And they put a plaque at the bottom of the rotunda that acknowledged, you know, that there had been slave workers. And there was joy about that. The memorial initially a student-run competition before the university picked it up was years in the making. And it was a unique project. And it's either an architect's dream or their worst nightmare because we had no site and we had no budget. The university had no idea what, it, what the memorial should be. And we had 10 months to figure it, less than 10 months, I think, to figure it out. We work very collaboratively. It was a very open exchange of ideas. And that was really me, Jin Yoon, and Eric Heller asked us to come on board as partners, as equals in the process. The landscape architect, myself as a historian designer, Frank Duke, who is an amazing mediator activist. Frank was a key voice in the removal of the Confederate monuments. So, so that was the core. And then Eto came on a year later. And then we all just had other great people that worked with us on the projects. It was just a really remarkable. And then all the people at UVA, the UVA's architects, the it was a president's committee on slavery, and they did a lot of outreach. And so it really was, you know, when the Board of Visitors approved the project, which is no small feat given the history of that university, um, you know, it really did feel like it took a village. So, and now that it's done, you just realize that's what you can get if, if you drop the genius ego the category of architect as it's enshrined in our architectural education as white male and, you know, brilliant, then you can produce work that really is meaningful. Mabel's most recent collaboration helped lead to the formation of a collective of Black artists and architects whose work made up the exhibition Reconstruction, Architecture, and Blackness in America that was previously held at MoMA in New York City. I mean, the show was kind of started from a conversation that Sean um, Anderson and I started up, and this was in part after... You know, I think Sean had been interested in thinking about anti-Black racism in the built environment. Yet MoMA should really address this question. The exhibition consisted of 10 major architects from around the country, each focused on a different city. The idea of the exhibition itself started from a conversation between Mabel and Sean Anderson, the former associate curator for the MoMA Department of Architecture and Design. 
I had been approached um, to write an essay uh, for a book called, among others, Blackness at MoMA. It was edited by Darby English and Charlotte Barat. And I was asked to write about the fact that there were no Black architects or designers in MoMA's um, collection, which was an important, the first collection of architecture and design in the world. And yet out of all the objects that had been collected, couldn't really find anything by anyone who would claim Black heritage, let's put it that way, very directly and overtly, nor very many representations of Blackness for that matter, very, very, very few. Um, And so from that essay, thinking about ideas of repair, how do you repair an archive, reparations, Mabel and Sean pitched a show to MoMA. Once they agreed, they began to seek out and build the team of Black architects, and in the process came up with the location-based framework, highlighting inequities of place and space around the country. Sean and I pitched a show to MoMA. They agreed, um, and you know we started to develop it. We had a really great advisory group um, because clearly without an archive, you've got to have another kind of archive mm-hmm. to think through these issues, to think who we might invite, how do we frame the show. Um, and then we found um, 10 really great architects, designers, and artists, and also invited the artist David Hart to contribute a piece to the show. So, you know, it became a way of not only addressing the question of anti-Black racism in the built environment through things like redlining, through kind of legacies of Uh, systemic violence, property theft, imminent domain, urban renewal, subprime mortgages, environmental degradation, um, you know, the list goes on and on and on. But also the fact that through that, you know, Black people have always imagined and made spaces. I mean, and, and, you know, Black people who, you know, have long histories of being American, but also Black people who migrate to America from Cuba, from all parts of of Africa, the Dominican Republic, Caribbean, South America, like Blackness is a very capacious category. And the show really speaks to that and speaks to those histories. But it also offers a platform to, I think, imagine, like, what are possible futures? And we purposely made it so that it wasn't going to be a show that's going to solve America's housing problems. Because in many ways, efforts to solve that problem with a discipline that is racialized, as we show in Black race and modern architecture, that's that's already a problem, right? So are there, you know, methods, ways of thinking that may come from art or poetry or literature or policy or whatever people are drawing into their work to sort of think about like what these futures might be. And so, you know, it's, it's a show really about expressing that in, in the Museum of Modern Art, which is just a really great platform to, to do that kind of work and to reach broad audiences. Mabel felt the show was a remarkable undertaking from the art handlers to the educational staff to the curatorial assistants. I feel really grateful for, you know, just all of the people who have contributed to the show. I mean, it's just a really, really remarkable undertaking from the art handlers to the educational staff to, you know, we had a great curatorial assistant, Ariel Dion Krosnick and Anna Burkhardt, who helped out immensely, Aaron Smithson. I mean, it took a village, <laughs> to say the least, to get that show on the on the walls. And then also the fact that, you know, the, the 10 participants formed a collective, the Black Reconstructions Collective, and has been doing great work. I mean, you know, what more can you ask for <laughs> in terms of like the show really breaking ground and having a, an afterlife, which was important for us. I, I listened to their talk um, and I was really struck by the fact that they did form that collective so that the project could live on and have another life. 
And the fact that they all came together and they all have different ways of thinking and ideas and that they have a way of spreading out their ideas more globally. And then you also have the online course for reimagining Blackness in architecture that's on Corsaria. And so maybe Mm -hmm. I am going to wrap this up. And I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for having me today. I, I always love talking to you. I'd like to know what are some of the ways you envision yourself shifting the narrative with your work? And what do you envision as your next phase of you working as a curator, designer, writer, and educator? What do you feel that that might look like for you? I want to get back to my book and not do so much because I'm tired. And I do want to put time into that in the next coming years. So that's really kind of what's on, on my radar. Thank you. That's it for this episode with Mabel Wilson. You can find all of Mabel's info in our show notes. And stay tuned for our next episode. I'm Michelle Washington, the creator and host. Big shout outs to Alicia Jai, our producer. And another big shout out to Angelina Bruno for her work in helping me edit this episode. Let's not forget our sound engineer, Joanna Samuels, who also scored the music. You can find us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Curious Story Lab. Our website is CuriousStoryLab.com. And don't forget to follow us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. Even better, we love it if you leave us a review or tell us what you like or you'd like to hear in the near future. Peace out.